small words, you shall not murder. As I was going through my studies this week for this, I looked at it and I thought, this is going to be a a short, simple kind of a message. It's straightforward. You shall not murder, period. End of discussion. You don't need to go much beyond that. Next. But as I delved into it, I found that there's lots of questions that come up. This is a contemporary kind of an issue. Um, It's always relevant. Life and death is always relevant. And yet there are questions that come up like, well... If this is so, thou shalt not kill or murder, then what about things like warfare? What about issues like capital punishment, which the Bible even condones we read in many places? What about questions like suicide and abortion, euthanasia, all very, very contemporary issues? Life and death is always a contemporary issue. And the more I got into it, the more I studied it, I understood that there's no way to cover it all adequately on one Sunday morning message. So we're going to divide it into two. And we're going to look at a few of the initial things this morning and then some of those uh, other ramifications next week. Um, Those are hot potato issues. And uh, because they're so hot, uh, we'll take them next week. Um, Back to verse 13. If you have a King James Bible, it simply says, Thou shalt not kill. If you have a modern translation, it says, you shall not murder. That's more accurate. There are many words in Hebrew for kill. This word can only and does only mean murder. And so it's correctly translated by the modern translations for murder. This verse does not prohibit every form of killing, as we'll discover next week. The idea here is the intentional killing of another person for personal reasons, whatever those reasons might be. The intentional killing of another person for personal reasons. It's even been translated the violent and unauthorized killing of another person. Murder has always been a problem with man. From the beginning, it took only two generations to produce the first murderer. The first crime committed was homicide. Cain kills his brother Abel. Man's blood is shed. And it continues to be a problem from generation to generation of every society in the world. When was the last time you turned on CNN and didn't hear of a killing? Can you remember? Every time you read a newspaper, a magazine, or a news broadcast, you hear of some form of murderous killing, either of a people group or of an individual. In this country alone... There are over 25,000 murders reported each year. That's about 70 per day. If you add to that other murders that are not reported, if you add to that suicide, which is self-murder, if you add to that that abortion, which is pre-birth murder, the figures are astronomical. But the first thing I'd like to notice this morning or look at, is that there is a premise behind this commandment, and that is that life is sacred. The fact that God would say, you shall not murder, presupposes that there is a high sacred value upon human life. How a person views life will determine how that person views death. A person's view of death must always be seen through the lens of life. How do you view life? If you see life as petty, meaningless, then death is petty and meaningless, whether it's done accidentally or intentionally. 
In the days of Napoleon Bonaparte, one of the Austrian statesmen came to him and advised him about his plan. He said, Napoleon, your plan of warfare, if you try to maneuver this way and attack this way, it will cost at least 100,000 lives on your part. And he said, what's 100,000 lives to me? It was absolutely meaningless, the death of all of his compadres, because that's the way he viewed life. So what? But if you see life as given by a creator with a special class in and of itself for human beings, a higher class than just a biological animal, that it's a gift of God, then death becomes something very different. And the taking of life becomes an insult to the intention of the Creator. Now, I know that lots of people today believe that you are just an advanced biological animal. That's all you are. You're here by freak accident, let's face it. The fortuitous or fortuitous occurrences of accidental circumstance. Primordial slime and other particles happen to meet together at just the right time uh, through um, natural selection, survival of the fittest, adaptation to your environment. All of a sudden, voila, there you are. If you see life that way, then generally human life will become the same level eventually as animal life. Whether you kill a man or an animal, it's life, it's all the same. That is very much the consensus these days. I have a report from the American Journal of Pediatrics, an article by Peter Singer. This might shock you, it might not. He said, we can no longer base our ethics on the idea that human beings are a special form of creation. Made in the image of God, singled out from other animals, and alone possessing an immortal soul. But most of you view life as being a gift from God, a creator who has life in and of himself, and who desired to breathe that life into his creation. If you see life that way, it takes on a whole new meaning, and death takes on a whole new meaning. The source of life is God. Jeremiah declared, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have made man on the earth. I have made the earth, the beast that are on the ground, by my great power and my outstretched arm. David said, Lord, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He didn't say, Lord, I am fearfully and wonderfully evolved. Fortuitous occurrences of accidental circumstances am I. Oh, rejoice. He knew that behind the design was a designer who created man upon the earth. We read about that in Genesis. The Lord God formed out of the ground, we read. He formed man out of the dust. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. That ethic is called the sanctity of life. And if you are a Christian that is a biblical Christian, you believe in the sanctity of life. Humans are in a class of their own. Their life is sacred. That idea of the sanctity of life is being challenged by a new ethic called the value of life rather than the sanctity of life. It's the quality of life. That is, how smart is a person? How much can he give to his society? What quality of life will he or she live? And that will determine if that person is fit to live. That might sound very Nazi Germany, but that's the prevailing consensus. 
again from another medical journal. A man by the name of Joseph Fletcher said a person must have the minimum score of 20 on the IQ scale to be worthwhile. If you lack or you're below that, if you're at 19.8, you are worthless in Joseph Fletcher's view of life. Because to him, life is in, human life isn't sacred. It's on the same biological plane as anything else. But if you're a Christian, you know that life is sacred. Why is life sacred? Why do we say the sanctity of life? Simply because in Genesis 1, God created man in the image of God. In the image of God created he them, and he made them male and female. That's why life is sacred. You and I are made in the image of God. What does that mean? That does not mean like some of the heretics say today and some Christian uh, broadcasts that we are little gods. But the idea that we are in the image of God means several things. First of all, it means that man is capable of conceptual thought. You can think up your own ideas. You can come up with ideas on your own. You can conceive before the reality happens. Uh, secondly, you have imagination. You can be creative, artistic. Also, you can produce things. You can produce works. You can engineer things and bring them to completion. There are clear distinctions between man and the rest of the animal world. Uh, Mark Twain even noticed that man is the only creature that is capable of blushing and should blush. In other words, we know the difference between right and wrong, just and unjust, fair and unfair. You're also in the image of God. That means that you are a trinity, I believe. You're body, soul, and spirit. You're not just body, biological. You're soul and spirit. You've got emotions, but you've got the ability to communicate with God and the ability to receive communication from God. You were designed for eternity, not just the earth. You have an eternal dimension. So when God says, you shall not murder, it's not an unreasonable demand. He simply says, don't destroy what I made. I'm the creator. I'm the sustainer of life. Don't destroy what I've made, something that is in my likeness and image. So it all depends on where your premise is. This presupposes the ethic that life is sacred. You might say, well, I don't think life is sacred. I think that life is the same as the life of an elk or a deer or a mink or whatever. Everybody has rights. Every creature has rights. And they're all the same. It just sort of depends on your view of the origin of life. Now, most of you in this setting and probably listening by Christian radio would say, well, I believe that we are created by God. If you believe that, you're in the minority. I believe that, and I'm in the minority. The idea today is that you weren't created. Come on, that's a myth that's been passed on through religious circles, but everybody with any intelligence knows that that's outdated. We know that we evolved. You might believe in evolution, and if you do, I've got to congratulate you. You've got a lot more faith than I have. I think it takes more faith, blind faith, to come up to that conclusion than to believe that God created the heavens and the earth. One author with tongue-in-cheek looks at an automobile this way. Many, many centuries ago, all of this iron, glass, rubber, plastic, fabric, leather, wires came up from the ground. Furthermore, each substance fashioned itself into various shapes and sizes, and holes evolved at just the right places, and the upholstery began to weave itself all together. After a while, threads appeared on bolts and nuts, 
Amazing as it may seem, each bolt found nuts with matching threads. And gradually, everything sort of screwed up tightly in place. A little later, correctly shaped glass glued itself in just the right places. And you see those tires? Well, they became round over many, many years. They found themselves the right size metal wheels. They sort of just popped on. They also filled themselves with air. Somehow, nobody knows, and the thing began to roll down the street. And one day, many, many years ago, centuries really, some people were walking along and they found this vehicle sitting under a tree. One of them looked at it and thought, how amazing. It shall be called automobile. Ah, but there's more. These little automobiles have an amazing way of multiplying themselves year after year, even changing, you might say evolving ever so slightly to meet the demands of the public. Actually, the whole process is called auto-mutations. Now you look at that and go, that's silly. That GM car was designed by GM, exactly. This terrific design called a human body has a designer behind it. Especially when you look at the capabilities of the human mind, the brain, the neurons, and the way it's put together. It's absolutely amazing. Now, the basic premise that life is sacred is actually a tenet of many organized societies. That is, you can't walk down the street and indiscriminately kill somebody you don't like. Oh, there's a guy I don't like. Oh, I didn't get my hamburger. It took too long. Can't do that. There's laws against it. It's a basic human right. Because there's a premise that human life is somehow different. It's sacred. In the Declaration of Independence... We read and probably remember from our school days, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men were created equal and were endowed by their creator. You don't believe that. That's not American. We were created equal. We were given certain unalienable rights by our creator. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That was part of the fiber of this nation. Abraham Lincoln, commenting on the Declaration of Independence and speaking about the sanctity of life, said, This was the lofty, wise, noble understanding of the justice of the Creator to His creatures. Yes, gentlemen, to all of His creatures, to the whole great family of mankind. In their enlightened belief, nothing stamped with the divine image and likeness was sent into the world to be trodden on. So the premise of the command, life is sacred. The problem is with man. Man is defiled. Life is sacred, but somewhere in the history of man, we call it the fall, life has become less than what God intended it to become, and people started viewing life that way. The problem isn't with the command. Now, if you look at the history of the world, and you say, no, wait a minute. From the very beginning of time, man has murdered his brother, murdered fellow man. So there must be a problem with this command. It's such a high, lofty demand, we've never been able to keep it. But the problem isn't with the command, it's with the sinful heart of humanity. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. In Romans he said, The law is holy, the commandment holy, just, and good. The law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Years ago there was a radio show called The Shadow. Um, I never was privy to listening to it as my uh, 
parents were. But I heard some of the lines in it, and it's become sort of famous. It opened up with the all-famous phrase. They said, Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? Answer, God does. God knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. For through Isaiah the prophet, God said, The heart of man is desperately wicked above anything else. Who can know it? I don't know if you caught it this week, but Franklin Graham, head of Samaritan's Purse, was on Good Morning America. They interviewed him. And uh, as they were talking about Bosnia and Somalia and the tragedies around the world that Samaritan's Purse is getting involved in through food and medical supplies, the moderator said, Franklin, now be honest with me. Aren't you discouraged when you go to these countries and you see all of man's inhumanity to man? Doesn't it shock you and surprise you? Doesn't it discourage you? It never ends. Franklin smiled and said, it doesn't surprise me one bit. For God said, the heart of man is desperately wicked. And then he said, and Charlie, that's the whole reason that God sent Jesus Christ into the world to pay the penalty for man's sins. And he died on the cross so the people can go to heaven. He got to share the gospel with the whole country in just a little sentence. But that's the basic problem. It's with the heart of man. Not with the commandment of God, but the heart of man who has fallen. From the beginning of time, people have asked, where do wars come from? Where do murders come from? James asked that question. In James chapter 4, he said, What causes fights and quarrels or wars among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. That's the problem. The problem isn't with the guns. The problem isn't with the stones or the knives. Men have been carrying stones, flint knives, axes, swords, and now nuclear weapons for a long time. The problem is with the heart of man who uses them wrongfully. You see, a knife can kill a person, but a knife can free a person who's bound by ropes. The problem isn't with the knife. Oh, that wicked knife! No, the problem is with the heart of man who has fallen from God's intentions. Years ago, Sigmund Freud, I mean Freud, Freudian slip. Though he hasn't said many things I agree with, he did make an astute notation at the character of man when he said, the very emphasis of the commandment, you shall not kill, makes it certain that we are descended from an endlessly long chain of generation of murderers whose love of murder was in their blood and perhaps also in ours. When a society breaks the sixth commandment, that society is a depraved group of people. That's what Hosea complained about in the Old Testament. Even looking at the children of Israel, he said, there's no faithfulness in the land. There's no love. There's only bloodshed upon bloodshed and murder upon murder. I think we could cry the same thing today as we look at our country. Where's the faithfulness in the land? Where's the love of God? There's just bloodshed upon bloodshed, murder upon murder. Did you know that a team of researchers in New York City was so amazed at man's bent toward destroying his fellow man, they conducted a study. And one little paragraph I wanted to share with you this morning, they said 7% of us say that they would murder somebody for money. That is one in every 14 people. Whether they could actually pull the trigger is another question, but 36 million of us would be willing to consider the offer. 
Now, before we go, whoa, too much, keep in mind that we're pouring billions of dollars into a film industry that glorifies this. And it's not just a film industry, it's television industry. And I don't want to ride a little television soapbox, but let's face it, in children's programming, children's programming on television, it is estimated the average is 25 violent acts per hour. Most of it's depicted as humorous, so much so that the kid watches it when the bad guy, quote-unquote, dies. You go, yes! That's up 50%, by the way, from 1980. We're on the rise. The premise, life is sacred. The problem, the heart of man. Now I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. We look at the passion that breaks this commandment, and that's the sinful anger within the heart of man. Matthew chapter 5, New Testament book of Matthew. Sermon on the Mount. As you're turning there, let me tell you about something that happened a few years ago in India while I was there. I heard a story of a bus driver who had to make a critical decision as he was driving down one of the streets in his bus. The bus, the, the streets of India, how can you describe them? You've traveled, some of you, to different countries where you haven't seen anything until you've been to India. I mean, there's cars, buses, ox carts, camels, um, people, bicycles, children, chickens, cows, all going whatever direction they want. There are no traffic laws. They sort of existentialize the traffic laws. It's kind of whatever you feel at the moment. The bus driver was going down the street. Because of the traffic, he had to make a critical split hair kind of a decision last minute. Should he swerve and hit the cow or should he swerve and hit the human? He opted to hit the human, struck the man, killed him, lest he hit the holy cow. The value of human life in that country has devalued. The value of animal life is very, very high. We're not at that point yet, but we're moving toward that direction. When your view of life is that you're a biological animal, human life is devalued from the sanctity of life to the brainwave function, and animals get more rights, or at least the same rights, as human beings. But let's get to the heart of the issue here. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus mentions the commandment we just read, by saying, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you. Now that's one of Jesus' method of teaching. He'll say, you've heard it, but... And it's not like he's going to create a whole new teaching that will cancel out the Old Testament, but he's going to shed light onto the correct interpretation of that law. I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. 
Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. We are fond, I think, of classifying sin. There's the not-so-bad, the bad, and then the ultra-bad. Or to put it in church terms, there's venial sins and there's mortal sins. That's the terminology I grew up with. Venial sins are like heavenly misdemeanors. They're bad, but not, God will slap your wrist and you go on, everybody doesn't. But then there are those heavenly felonies. And in that mortal sin category, murder probably tops the list. But how many of us would call ourselves murderers because we were wrongfully, sinfully angry with another person? We wouldn't say, I'm not a murderer. But you know what God is always concerned with? is right inside the heart, the inner you. He always, it seems, focuses more than on the outward, on the inward. We notice that throughout the whole Bible. Because the outward actions of a person can sometimes cover over the truth of the person's heart. After David sinned with Bathsheba, he recognized, he said, Oh Lord, you desire truth in the inward parts. It's not just the outward. You're concerned about the inward. Years later to his son Solomon, David said, The Lord searches every heart and he understands every motive behind the thoughts. You see, murder, like any other sinful action, begins in the heart. It's not an action of the hands, it's an action of the heart. It's an action of the will that will protract itself out and eventually could take the life of another person. It begins in the heart. Jesus said, It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out from his heart. For out of a man's heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adultery, and the like. When I was younger, I had a real problem with anger. Now, I don't anymore, all right? Now, I really had a problem. I struggled. I was the youngest uh, of four sons. I wanted to prove myself to my brothers, and I tried to, you know, we got in a lot of fights. I think every kid does, but... At one time, if you were to walk through my parents' front door, turn left, look down the hallway, you'd see a door with a hole in it from where I put a hole with my foot. And they left it there as a testimony for many years. And I hung my head every time I came in and saw that door. Hey, Dad, could you fix that? Someday we'll fix that. I remember the time I chased my brother when my parents were gone and I threw him through the front glass window of our living room out into the front lawn. Uh, we got a weapon, of course, for it. We replaced the window. Two weeks later, my parents were out on a date again. My brother threw me through the same window that had just been replaced. We got in fights. I remember the afternoon I chased my brother with a switchblade, ever ready to plunge it into him. Instead, he turned on me with a pencil and got my arm. I had fights with my father. There were times where under my breath I thought I could kill him. I was a murderer. By God's definition, I was guilty of committing murder. I never pulled a trigger. But the only difference between the upstanding citizen who is full of hatred and a person on death row who pulled the trigger is just that. Somebody performed the action. Why didn't the upstanding citizen with all the anger do it? Well, he was probably prevented. Either because he was afraid or circumstances prevented him. He didn't want to get caught. So he'll figure out some way to get back. But both are tantamount to each other. 
Everybody struggled with anger. You say, oh, now come on, don't get too radical. That's just being temperamental. 90% temper, 10% mental. That's what temperamental is. Control your anger. If it's out of hand, it can become sinful anger. Now, look at verse 22 for just a moment. Jesus says, I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause. Now, that's interesting. That's interesting. It's anger without a cause. Not every form of anger is wrong. Paul said, be angry and sin not. Or better translated, be angry, but don't let your anger lead you to sin. Jesus was angry. I suppose if you take a whip out and throw people out of the temple with a whip and overturn their tables, that's anger. But that's what Martin Luther called the anger of love or righteous indignation. It's not that he was personally wanting to revenge himself on these people, but he was angry with a cause, and that is they had stolen the glory of God and they had taken it upon themselves. And it was the righteous indignation, the anger of love. But verse 22, the word for anger is the Greek word orgidso, which means a long-lived, seething rage. It's deep down inside. It's been nurtured. It's the desire to get back, to revenge and to not let it die. And that, folks, is the worst way to live your life. There's no heavier burden on your back than a pack of grudges. It will actually destroy you. I've seen people who refuse to forgive, who will not let some issue go. They become so cantankerous, they're always bringing the issue up. They're miserable to be around. They refuse to forgive. It hurts them. It hurts the other people. And as we'll see here, it will hurt the relationship that person has or claims to have with God. Notice the word Jesus uses in verse 22. Whoever says to his brother, Raka. What does that mean? That's one of those untranslatable New Testament words. There's not an exact equivalent in our language for it. That's why it's not translated. It's transliterated from the original Raka. The idea, best we know begins with an attitude of prideful superiority that would despise another person. Some people have tried to translate it with words like brainless idiot, worthless empty head, and the like. But the idea is, I am much better than you and I despise you. And that's an affront to God because man is made in the image of God. There's a story about a Jewish rabbi who went to have some sessions with a known, reputable Jewish rabbi, very famous. And this student comes from the rabbi's house, very prideful because he gave a good speech today and he had all the answers and he thought he was something. As he was walking down the street, he saw an unattractive fellow and he said, You raka, you are so ugly. At which the man replied, Then go tell the creator who made me that his creation is ugly. In other words, you've despised God, not just me. That's the intentional idea behind the word raka. And whoever says, you fool, the Greek word maros, where we get the word moron, shall be in danger of hellfire. A few lessons so far that we've learned. Number one, your thoughts and your words may never lead to murder, but they can be exactly equivalent to it in God's economy. You might never plunge the knife or pull the trigger, but they might be equivalent to it in God's thinking. They're simply a symptom of your desire to get rid of another human being. 
You say, certainly it's not the same thing. It is. John said in 1 John chapter 3, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Because that's where murder begins. It's the seed. Secondly, sin always begins deep down, hidden in the recesses of the heart. You might not see it in a person's life. It might not be manifest until much later on. And when it comes to the surface and you go, I'm shocked. All you're seeing is something that began a long time ago. It was always there. It just finally surfaced. Thirdly, anytime we by words destroy another person's character or good name, that's serious business. You can do that by gossip. Gossip assassinates another person's character. You might think, well, I'm not going to pull the trigger, but I'm going to certainly tell people what a rotten guy or gal he or she is. I'm going to make sure that their reputation is so destroyed and debilitated around people. Even if it's not totally the truth, that is serious business, to assassinate the character of another person. Now verse 23, therefore, or Jesus is saying, let's apply it. If you bring your gift to the altar... And there, that is at the altar, you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Okay, picture a worshiper going to the temple 2,000 years ago. He thinks, well, I better get that ram and take it to the priest and, and atone for my sin. And perhaps it was the sin of offending a brother. Let's say the situation was like this had a big argument yesterday with Shlomo. And I know that I really offended Shlomo, so I better get things right. I'll take an animal to the priest, I'll go through the ritual, and all my sins will be taken care of. So he goes to the temple, lays his hands on the ram. Oh God, forgive me, I had an argument with Shlomo. Uh, tenderize his heart and just let me get it right with you. He's about to give it to the priest. Jesus' words are, stop. Don't go any further. Don't you dare go on with the ritual. Don't cover your sin with the ritual when the idea is the relationship with that person has been left untended and unresolved. Jesus is saying the quickest way to God in that case is through your brother. If you know you've offended him, you go and you reconcile, meaning clear the path of all the things that have stood in the way that you know you've offended him with. You make it right first. Go your way. Leave your gift there before the altar. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Don't ignore the issue by a ritual. That's always been God's intention. This is not a new, novel kind of a teaching Jesus is giving. It's, it's even part of the Old Testament. For instance, in the times of Isaiah the prophet, temple worship was never sweeter. People came in record numbers to the temple. They would lift up their hands, they would sing the songs, they would bring the animals, but they were oppressing their neighbor. There was sinful thoughts in the nation, and murder was rampant. Now let me read to you a portion of Isaiah chapter 1, a message from God to the people of Israel. If you'd like to look at it with me, it's found in Isaiah chapter 1. And I'm going to start reading in verse 11. God says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. And when you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? 
Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense, it's an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Notice why. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away evil doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Here's the bottom line point I'm trying to get to. Worship is not enhanced by better music. Worship is not enhanced by better preaching or by better carpet or new architectural designs or even better prayers. Worship is enhanced by better relationships. One of the reasons perhaps some of us are so distant in our worship of God, we don't seem to connect, is because we've left untended those relationships, those people we have deliberately offended, and in sinful anger, we have sinned against them. And we've left it, and we've not attempted to reconcile. Jesus says, leave your gift, and then go on. Reconciliation should always be sought before we come and worship. David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Now, just a note about this, before we get too paranoid about that lesson. The message in verses 21 through 26 are for the offender who knows he's offended somebody else. If you're worshiping and you remember, you know it. You see, that doesn't mean you go around and say, you know, you kind of looked at me funny the other day. Did I offend you? No, it's well, you've done something. You know you've done something and you know that person is offended by it and deeply hurt and you did it for that reason. And you leave your gift and you go reconcile. You try to make things right. Well, what if they don't listen to you? Well, at least you've done your part. You've done your part to resolve it, to reconcile it, and to bring it to closure. Now, what if somebody sins against you? Well, Jesus said, if a brother sins against you, go to that brother and tell him his fault just between the two of you, not between the 15,000 of you in gossip, between the two of you, and you get it right and you forgive your brother. And that doesn't mean, again, that every single thing that a person does that might irritate you, you've got to say, that person sinned against me. No, he just bugs you. So just forgive him and drop it. You don't have to say, you know, you kind of comb your hair weird, sister. I'm deeply offended. I'm stumbled. No, you're not. You're just a little weird and it kind of bugs you, so just drop it. The idea is a sinful kind of an act that has caused a separation. Do some of us need to confess the sin of murder this morning? Is there a new definition, perhaps, that Jesus has given to us? Though it has been said that murder is the act, Jesus says that murder is the attitude. And James tells us in his book, he says, For some of you, out of the same mouth comes praising of God, and out of the same lips comes the cursing of man. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Oh, but I just lose my temper. Well, lose it for good. Don't find it again for a long time. Life is sacred. Men and women are created in the image of God. 
No other species of life can boast of that. The problem, right here. Man has fallen. We're the problem, not the commandment. And it all begins in the heart, in the thoughts and the motivations that prompt the actions. Next week, we want to look at some of those tough issues. As we continue, thou shalt not murder. Father, we thank you for our lives. You've given us breath. You've breathed into us the breath of life. And how grateful we are to be able to worship you as the psalmist declares, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. We thank you, Father, for our life, that there is an eternal dimension about human life, that it's not just the quality of life, it's the sanctity of life because we're created in your image. Lord, I pray that sinful anger, revenge, and bitterness would be something that was once named among us, not something that is now currently named among us. Oh God, teach us to humble ourselves for husbands and wives to forgive each other freely, to humble themselves before their children, and for brothers and sisters to demonstrate love. Give us, Lord, a perspective adjustment. Change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.